You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan here in September of 2023 with episode 450 of The Corbett Report podcast. Who will fact-check the fact-checkers? I will! <laughs> and I know what you're thinking to yourself right now. You're thinking, wait, is this a, is this another flashback episode? Uh, episode 381 from June of 2020, right? Uh, who will fact check the fact checkers? No, 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 no. <laughs> See, I've been I've been looking around for the past few years looking for an answer to that question. It's not a rhetorical question. It's a real question that requires a real answer. So <laughs> I thought I might as well step into the ring and offer an answer. Okay, I will fact check the fact checkers. <laughs> for people who don't know what I'm talking about, please do go back and watch or rewatch episode 381. I think it was an important one on an increasingly important topic. Like a lot of the things that I cover on the Corporate Report podcast, it's not just as relevant as the day in which I recorded it, it's probably more relevant, because in case you haven't been paying attention these past three years, let alone these past ten years, you will probably note that we are stepping into a world that is increasingly dominated by fact-checkers. In fact, fact-checking is not just some sort of Orwellian journalism, quasi-journalism-related enterprise that is just another arm of the propaganda branch of the beast which we are facing uh, every single day. No, it's becoming the main arm, the main tentacle through which the propaganda is functioning and through which the official, uh, officially sanctioned reality is being dictated to the public. And if this is this clown world that we are stepping into that is increasingly dominated by this entire industry, this fact-checking industry that has arisen in the wake of the fake news crisis of the past several years, then who, pray tell, are the ringleaders of this insane circus? is really quite ferocious it's when a huckster takes some lies and makes them sound precocious by saying them in congress or a mainstream outlet so disinformation's origins are slightly less atrocious well the department of homeland security has placed a pause on the newly minted disinformation governance board as we reported yesterday but now its first executive director nina yankowicz has resigned the board's existence, which was announced just three weeks ago, prompted serious concerns from many civil libertarians and inspired Ministry of Truth comparisons. I'm just curious. I'm trying to understand what you mean by hateful con content. And I'm asking for specific examples. Um, and, if, and you just said that if something is slightly sexist, that's hateful content. Does that mean that it should be banned? Well, you've asked me, you've asked me whether my feed whether it's got less or more. It, I'd say it's got slightly more. That's why I'm asking for examples. Can, right. you, can you name one example? I, I honestly don't use... I, I, honestly, you I don't... You can't name I, a single example. I'll tell you why, because I don't actually use that for you feed anymore, because I, I just don't particularly like it. But you said actually, you... A, lot of people, a lot of people are quite similar. I, 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 only, well, well, I only look well, at my, my following. hang on a second. You said you've seen more hateful content, but you can't name a single example. Not even one. I'm not sure I've used that feed for the last three or four weeks. And I, well, I, then I how did you, you see the hateful content? content? Because I've been, I've been using, I've been using Twitter since you've taken it over for the last six months. Okay, so then you must have at some point seen the you, for you hateful content. I'm asking for one example. Right. And you I, can't I, give a single I, one. And, and, and I'm saying, I've, I, then I, I say, sir, that you don't know what you're talking about. I'm Mariana Spring. I'm the BBC's first ever uh, specialist disinformation and social media reporter. And what that means uh, is that I investigate the human cost of online conspiracy theories, trolling, abuse, disinformation, uh, social media investigations in general. Uh, and I've been very busy during the pandemic. And BBC fact checker Mariana Spring turns out to have lied on her CV. It begs the question, who checks the fact checkers? I'll never know because Mariana has now blocked me. Well, naturally, who else would you get to be the ringleaders of Clown World other than a bunch of circus clowns, idiots, bumbling boobs who can barely tie their own shoelaces, let alone construct a coherent argument based on facts and evidence. But these are the exact kind of people who will simply parrot whatever the official line is on any subject with doing zero research for themselves who profit most in this type of particular grift. But of course, these are the low-level minions 
the foot soldiers of this war. Not the ones who are really directing it, but without the foot soldiers, the war would not be possible. So it is important to laugh at these clowns and to rightly point out when they are not just not just wrong, not just mistaken, not just bumbling, but actively spreading misinformation themselves. And what, perf what more perfect example could you ask for than that last example, which I'm sure will be, uh, well, this particular critter will be familiar, I'm sure, to my British listeners, as they have been subjected to her propaganda for the past few years. I'm talking, of course, about Mariana Spring of the Big Brother Corporation, who uh, has certainly made a splash in recent years. The misinformation expert, the first BBC misinformation expert, who, of course, now has her own conspiracy debunking podcast, right? Mariana in Conspiracy Land. I have not tuned in myself, because although I probably should hold my nose and listen to the enemy for the purpose of being able to better debunk that enemy, I just can't bring myself to do it. Luckily, there are people who are doing that yeoman's work, namely former Corbett Report guest Ian Davis at iandavis.com. Um, I'm sure you're following his work, but if not, here's a good Here's a good summarization of it. You can go and see he's doing an actual breakdown of this Mariana in Conspiracy Land podcast. And he's up to part five in his breakdown. Here's the most recent one from just a few weeks ago. Deconstructing Mariana in Conspiracy Land, part five. And uh, if you go to this link, which of course will be in the show notes, there's the links to the previous four parts as well. So you can get caught up to speed. But essentially, Ian Davis breaking down in inimitable Ian Davis style, point by point, aggressively footnoted exactly what Mariana is getting wrong. And not just getting wrong, but deliberately wrong uh, in an attempt to spread disinformation about the disinformation spreaders. And I say that advisedly because this disinformation expert certainly does know a thing or two about disinformation, as we found out in recent weeks when it turned out that... <gasps> Uh-oh, it seems Mariana Spring has spread some disinformation of her own about her own biography. That's how she started her wonderful journalistic career, her much-lauded journalistic career, yes. Uh, this was originally, I believe, broken by the New European, but it was picked up by the Grey Zone uh, just a week or two ago. A BBC disinformation correspondent busted spreading disinfo on her own bio, which notes that the BBC's Mariana Spring specializes in branding average citizens as conspiracy theorists and potential terrorists for questioning official claims. When caught lying about her own professional record to receive her and to advance her ambitions, she says she thought her deceit wouldn't be a big deal. What are we talking about specifically? On September 6th, the New European, New European reported that BBC's specialist disinformation correspondent Mariana Spring lied on her resume in a failed attempt to bag work with Coda Story back in 2018. And for those who don't know, it goes on to explain that Coda Story is a independent outlet that is funded by the National Endowment for Democracy, a.k.a. the CIA by other means. So, of course, the U.S. establishment government regime change operation in all but name. But anyway, Spring was attempting to get work there, and she submitted an application to Coda Story Editor-in-Chief Natalia Antalava, uh, containing a CV in which she claimed to have worked alongside BBC correspondent Sarah Rainsford on the British state broadcasters reporting on that year's World Cup in Russia, Specifically, the entry on the CV read, June 2018, reported on international news during the World Cup, specifically the perception of Russia with BBC correspondent Sarah Rainsford. Only one problem with that, it's not true. Uh, as they say, this is the textbook def definition of disinformation. In truth, Spring had met Rainsford in a handful of social settings, but they never worked together. Um, when this was pointed out, the future BBC apparatchik responded with a groveling apology, expressing contrition for her awful misjudgment, while somewhat amazingly still professing to be a brilliant reporter. <laughs> I've only bumped into Sarah whilst she's working and chatted to her at various points, but nothing more. Everything else on my CV is entirely true. There's absolutely no excuse at all, and I'm really a sorry again. The only explanation at all is my desperation to report out in Moscow. <laughs> You gotta wonder about that. And thinking that it wouldn't be a big deal, which was totally naive and stupid of me. I'm really sorry again for this awful misjudgment on my part. It wouldn't be a big deal if I just lied and totally made up a complete and 100% utter falsehood for the purpose of getting this job that I really want. Isn't that okay? 
says the disinformation expert. You can't make this stuff... Well, actually, you can make this stuff up, evidently. Anyway, Antalava did not respond well, rejecting Spring's application outright and remarking, telling me you are a brilliant reporter who exercises integrity and honesty when you have literally demonstrated the opposite was a terrible idea. <laughs> you don't say. Yeah. It, it's mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. It, the craziest part is this story only comes out five years later, after Mariana Spring has been established as the BBC's first misinformation expert, specialist reporter on the subject who's received awards and, and laudatory uh, uh, gatherings celebrating her existence and what a brave and wonderful reporter she is and oh, how much abuse she suffered from the conspiracy theorists who sling accusations at her online. Anyway, by the way, this may actually also be illegal, as Kit Clarenberg points out here in this Grey Zone article. Uh, in Britain, her country of birth, lying on one's resume is a serious criminal offense under the 2006 Fraud Act if an individual exaggerates their qualification with the intent of gaining uh, employment, they can face hefty fines and a possible jail sentence of up to 10 years. Let's not hold our breath waiting for that jail sentence for Mariana Spring. I don't... I have a feeling that's not going to eventuate. In fact, I have a feeling she's not going to lose her job. But anyway, we'll find out, right? Anyway, not long after her CV falsification, Spring joined the flagship... Mm, Grey Zone editors, please note typo there, flagship BBC political program Newsnight, and was then promoted as the broadcaster's specialist disinformation correspondent in March 2020. And as they go on to point out, she was actually named in a uh, an email that, that came out from a UK spook world spook who was trying to set up a meeting that involved Mariana Spring and others, uh, Bellingcat uh, representatives and others, to basically denigrate the Grey Zone in its reporting. So anyway, there's more to that story there that you can read into. But at any rate, this is, I mean, just insanity. But the unfortunately, the kind of insanity we now expect in clown world. The only quibble I would have with this article is when they say this claim was the textbook dis definition of disinformation. No, this is the textbook definition of lying. Let us be precise with our words. Let us not adopt their vocabulary, at least in this case, because misinformation, disinformation, and of course now they're trying to introduce a new word to the English language, malinformation. Well, I know misinformation. I know disinformation. What is malinformation? Oh, malinformation is actually true information, but it's inconvenient to the powers that shouldn't be. So we'll call it malinformation, lump it into the same category as mis- and disinformation, and censor it all equally. That, I think that's the equity they're talking about in their diversity, equity, inclusion um, spiel that they're giving all over the place right now, isn't it? Anyway, yeah, it's not disinformation that she put on her CV. It is a lie. She lied. Let us call things by their proper name. Anyway, I think this gives you an, a sense of the integrity of the people who will debase themselves in order to get jobs in which they show that they can lie. And isn't it interesting that this known, proven liar who lied specifically to try to get a job in which she could then lie about various things in favor of establishment did indeed land that job. In fact, a much better job than the one she was going for. She landed at BBC's Newsnight. She became the disinformation specialist. She's been awarded and, and lauded and given all sorts of celebrations of her existence and been called brave and wonderful for the fact that, yes, she's proven herself to be a great liar. It's almost as if the BBC was looking for those qualifications in their disinformation expert, isn't it? But anyway, we can attack, as I say, these foot soldiers in the disinformation information war as much as we want, but that's kind of missing the point. I think it's more instructive to treat today's exploration as more of like an extended edition of the now abandoned propaganda watch, where we, we dissect some of these fact checks to show how they work, to completely disarm them, so that you can show... I know you in the Corporate Report audience, if you are a Corporate Report regular, you do not need to probably be shown how this works. You know how it works. But let's go through it together so that you can share this information with others who bring up their fact checks and debunks and, oh, I looked up CorbettReport.com and it was, uh, apparently it's on some list that says this was this site is of question of, is a conspiracy theory website. And that, I believe that. Okay, let's take a look at how this actually works. Let's look at an identifiable claim how that claim is fact-checked, 
and then what the reality really is. And let, let's start with a let's start with a little clip. Do, do you remember this report? Pentagon, the day before 911, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld declared war, not on foreign terrorists. The adversary is closer to home. It's the Pentagon bureaucracy. He said money wasted by the military poses a serious threat. In fact, it could be said that it's a matter of life and death. Rumsfeld promised change, but the next day, the world changed. And in the rush to fund the war on terrorism, the war on waste seems to have been forgotten. Yeah, if you're in the Corbett Report audience, I dare say you are familiar with that clip if not from actually seeing it when it first aired on CBS, lo, those many decades ago. Well, and at least from the many times I've played it on the Corbett Report or, par or parts thereof, or the fact that it's been circulating around in the conspiracy realist space for decades now, yeah. And it certainly seems like a pretty relevant thing to bring up around the time of the 9-11 anniversary, doesn't it? Oh, no, 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 not according to the fact-checkers. And we can get this from the Solari Report. Of course, Catherine Austin Fitz uh, just had this up the other day. $2.3 trillion missing money. Here's how fact-checking works, in which they have the clip, and then they talk a little bit about this. Uh, here's how fact-checking works. In the video above, watch Secret uh, Secretary, Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld saying there is $2.3 trillion unaccounted for at the Pentagon on September 10th, 2001. This video is from Solari's Missing Money Collection. It was published by CBS. Here are the fact-checkers saying it is not so, even though they were directed to our missing money documentation page at DOD and HUD, $21 trillion missing money, report and supporting documentation, and our missing money videos page. For lots of great videos on the $21 trillion missing from DOD and HUD, check out the missing money videos page. Okay. All right. And yes, the fact-check in question comes from AFP fact-check, which of course has the uh, soldier... Saluting the flag? Oh, first responder saluting a flag. So you have to immediately... Well, this is... You cannot denigrate anything to do with this image. So what are they propagandizing you with? 9-11 anniversary prompts return of Pentagon conspiracy theory, in which they note that social media users have claimed that the Pentagon reported $2.3 trillion in missing funds the day before September 11th, 2001, with some suggesting the government was behind the subsequent terrorist attacks. But the conspiracy theories, which resurfaced ahead of the 22nd anniversary of 9-11, are false. While then-Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld did mention the sum, auditors had already identified the unaccounted for money. <laughs> so let's break down a little bit what they are saying here and the way they are debunking and fact-checking this claim. First of all, we'll note the source that they're using for this. Of course, uh, what, what source are they going to use? Solari.com and their missing money page and the work of Dr. Mark Skidmore? No, no, no. Of course not. They're going to talk about some Instagram post, which had more than 2,000 likes, I tell you. And then they'll show you this this ridiculous Instagram post on the uh, the picture app, as, uh, as James M. Pilato likes to say, where people love to write treatises about 9-11 and whatever. Anyway, I don't understand it, but hey, I'm an old fogey. Anyway, yeah, on the picture app, someone posted this meme and then a Joe Rogan clip. So, of course, they cite the Rogan clip uh, where he's alluding to a C-SPAN clip in which Rumsfeld mentions the $2.3 trillion figure. All right, so just make a note of those sources. Put a pin in it. We'll come back to that later. But anyway, then they go on to talk about the claim itself. Our financial systems are decades old. According to some estimates, we cannot track $2.3 trillion in transactions. So note that phrase very well, friends. He did not say missing. He said cannot track. Big difference. And don't you dare use the word missing in connection with that. Anyway, uh, they go on to talk about how these claims have circulated online since at least 2005, that there's some sort of conspiracy going on here. And to their credit, in this link, they do sh uh, link to the at least the way back of 911truth.org who some people in the audience might remember, who had a post up in August of 2005, 2.3 trillion missing and counting, where in which they, they talk about this and they, they point out some of, the, uh, some of the information behind this claim. Again, put a pin in that, we'll come back to it later. And then they go on to say that the most recent reports of these conspiracy theorizers are also inaccurate. While Lumsfeld, well, Lumsfeld, while Rumsfeld did lament bureaucratic red tape and the lack of audit trails for $2.3 trillion the day before 9-11, it was not the first time, and he did not say that the money was missing. 
The DOD D had been reporting large unsupported adjustments for two decades, said Mark Skidmore, an economics professor at Michigan State University who's researched the Pentagon's accounting gaps. No, let's pause there for a moment, because that's an interesting statement. If I was just reading that, if I was just Joe Q. Normie, the normiest of the normies, just reading this to find out what I should believe about this issue, I would read that quote and say, well, this Mark Skidmore guy sounds like a professional university professor. He's got credentials. He knows what he's talking about. And he says, oh, the DOD has been reporting large unsupported adjustments for two decades. As in, the implication here, no big deal. We, we know about this. It's ongoing. It's been happening for decades. No big deal, right? Hmm. But ha, let me think about that. Mark Skidmore, I wonder, like, is this... Did they, they, they evidently reached out to Skidmore, right? And that's what Catherine Austin Fitz was alluding to in that post on Solari.com where she said they were provided with the missing monies page, etc. and all this documentation. So they must have reached out to Skidmore and he must have provided a lengthy statement in which he made this statement, which they took completely out of context to make it sound like he himself was also poo-pooing this claim. But I wonder, I wonder if they'd ever post an interview with Dr. Mark Skidmore about this. Like, oh, like, like I did five years ago, Mark Skidmore on the Pentagon's Missing Trillions. If you haven't heard that conversation, that's one you should probably give a listen or re-listen to. I think it's worth your time and attention because you better believe Mark Skidmore is a professor. He is credentialed. He does know what he's talking about. He has been studying this for years, and he does not think this is just some trivial little matter that should be uh, poo-pooed, these silly conspiracy theorists. So anyway, I'll let you do your research on that one, but... Anyway, that's one of the tricks that they'll use. They'll take someone's phrase completely out of context to make it sound like they're saying something that they're not. Anyway, and then they go on to say that the, the DOD Inspector General first noted this back in a February 2000 audit report that in accounting entries from the 1999 fiscal year, $2.3 trillion was not supported by adequate audit trails or sufficient ed- evidence to determine their validity. Yeah, so, you know, no big deal. They're not saying missing. They're just saying not supported no adequate audit trail, no evidence to support their, to determine their validity. You know, no big deal. And then the AP covered it at that time. And then the Senator Robert Byrne mentioned it at the nomination hearing, blah, blah, blah. Audit report found out that out of 7.6 trillion in department level accounting entries, 2.3 trillion in entries either did not contain adequate documentation or were improperly reconciled or were made to force buyer and seller data to, to agree. So, again, that makes that makes it sound like not as big a deal. Look, they got a $7.6 trillion in entries, and only 2.3 were unsupported. Well, actually, that's not even true, because if you actually read the audit report that they're talking about, they'll say they gave up counting after $2.3 trillion because it was getting to be such a headache. <laughs> but, yeah, they found $2.3 trillion and presumably much more, but they gave up after that point. Anyway, bah. Details, shmeetails, who cares? Get to the point. And, of course, eventually, blah, 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 blah. Claims about missing money play into long debunked theories that the federal government orchestrated 9-11, fueled in part by the fact that 34 members of the Pentagon's program and budget and managerial accounting divisions were killed. Archived here. (laughs) But, you know, whatever. Again, details. And, of course, here's the money quote. The 9-11 attack was driven by Osama bin Laden. Who said that? Oh, the bipartisan 9-11 commission report. And literally, this is the meat and substance and potatoes and everything they want you to take home from this fact check. Look, these conspiracy theories say that this has something to do with whatever. But look, the 9-11 commission report reported that the 9-11 attack was driven by Osama bin Laden. And then they show you this infographic showing you plane strikes and times and whatever. Here's, here's the course that the plane took, took. Here's how many people died. It's, it's an infographic for what they believe are, if not literal children, at least mental midgets that they believe are the people who constitute their audience. And maybe that is who constitutes the AFP fact check audience. And then they go on to quote more about the 9-11 commission report and its conclusions and say, there, there you go, guys. See? There was no conspiracy. So they have debunked the claim that Rumsfeld was talking at the Pentagon on 9-10-2001 about $2.3 trillion in unaccounted uh, transactions in the Pentagon's books by admitting that he did that, talking about how it was actually a much bigger problem than that, it was long known about, it was talked about, and therefore it had nothing to do with 9-11. And what happened the day after Donald Rumsfeld declared war on the Pentagon's bureaucracy. Oh, you didn't know about that part? Yeah, they kind of leave that part out. As well as many other interesting details. Um, 
So, as I say, of course they're going to quote Instagram posts and that quote Joe Rogan clips and things like this because this is the most easily dis containable, dismissible, debunkable. Look, here's some fringe thing with a couple of dozen views on some uh, social media platform in this weird context and no, no, of course, no sources, no documents, no journalism of any sort going on here. And we can easily contain that claim, skew it so it's saying something that we're not, that isn't even being debunked and then debunk it. And of course, how do they debunk it? They turn to people like Mark Skidmore, who I, I, I'm going to bet if you ask him about this, he wouldn't agree with this fact check. Uh, and uh, also they talk about things like, oh, well, actually, this was done in a February 2000 audit. You mean like the February 2000 audit that was specifically cited um, here in uh, in this this uh, very debunk that they were talking about uh, from the 911truth.org as the, oh, that was debunked. You know, we, uh, this this old thing. They, they talk about this. They talk about all of this, talking about February 2001 and, and other places where this had already been covered, as well as some of the surrounding context, like rebuilding America's defenses. And, oh yeah, Dov Zakheim being followed up, the Pentagon's controller, uh, being followed up on in this and various testimony to the House Budget Committee, etc. So there's a lot more info here that they're pretending that these conspiracy theorists never talk about, even when they're demonstrably talking about them. Anyway, there's a lot more to say about this story, don't you think? I mean, actually, if I was a thinking human being with two brain cells to rub together of my own, I would look at a fact check like this and think, well, I wonder what the real story is. This is actually a bigger story than what I what I would have believed if I'd just seen this on Insta or something. <laughs> There's actually much more to this. And you'd be right. So, so it really does raise the question. Instead of Insta posts of Rogan clips, what would it look like if there was some real journalism around this issue, and well, let me be so um, uh, so crass and unhumble as to present what that might look like if you were actually to dig into this story just a little bit. The uh, topic today is an adversary that poses a threat, serious threat to security of the United States of America. This adversary is one of the world's last bastions of central planning. It governs by dictating five-year plans from a single capital that attempts to impose its command across time zones, continents, oceans, and beyond. With brutal consistency, it stifles free thought and crushes new ideas. It disrupts the defense of the United States and places the lives of men and women in uniform at risk. On September 10th, 2001, Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld declared a new war. Not a war on a shadowy terrorist organization in Afghanistan, or even a war on terror itself, but a war on the Pentagon. The adversary is closer to home. It's the Pentagon bureaucracy. Perhaps it is no surprise that Rumsfeld felt compelled to declare a war on the Pentagon's bureaucracy. The issue of the Pentagon's $2.3 trillion accounting nightmare had been dogging him since his confirmation hearings in January of 2001. Although Rumsfeld was interested in pushing forward a modernization of the military that was projected to cost an additional $50 billion in funding, that agenda was politically impossible in the face of the Department of Defense's monumental budget problem. How can we seriously consider a $50 billion increase in the defense budget when DOD's own auditors, when DOD's own auditors say the department cannot account for $2.3 trillion in transactions in one year alone. Now, my question to you is, Mr. Secretary, what do you plan to do about this? Decline the nomination. <laughs> <laughs> It, it, uh, Senator, I have heard... I don't want to see you do that. <laughs> we'll stand adjourned in that case. <laughs> <laughs> Senator, I have heard some of that and read some of that, um, that the department is not capable of auditing its books. It, it is... Um, I was going to say terrifying... Terrifying only begins to describe the problem. 
The Department of Defense's own Inspector General report for fiscal year 1999 noted that the Defense Finance and Accounting Service had processed $7.6 trillion of department-level accounting entries in that year. Of that amount, only $3.5 trillion could be properly accounted for. $2.3 trillion in transactions were fudged to make entries balance, run through without proper documentation, or made up entirely. The Inspector General's office did not even examine the other $1.8 trillion in transactions because they did not have adequate time or staff to review them. In 2002, one DFAS accountant blew the whistle on the problem and the cover-up that was underway to stop investigators from finding out where the money went. According to some estimates, we cannot track $2.3 trillion in transactions. $2.3 trillion, with a T. That's $8,000 for every man, woman, and child in America. To understand how the Pentagon can lose track of trillions, consider the case of one military accountant who tried to find out what happened to a mere $300 million. We know it's gone, but we don't know what they spent it on. Jim Minnery, a former Marine turned whistleblower, is risking his job by speaking out for the first time about the millions he noticed were missing from one defense agency's balance sheets. Minnery tried to follow the money trail, even crisscrossing the country looking for records. The director looked at me and he says, why do you care about this stuff? <laughs> it took me aback, you know. My supervisor asked me why I care about doing a good job. So. He was reassigned and says officials then covered up the problem by just writing it off. As controller of the Pentagon from 2001 to 2004, Dov Zakheim was the man tasked with solving this problem. There are all kinds of long-standing rules and regulations about what you can do and what you can't do. I know Dr. Zakheim's been trying to hire CPAs because the financial systems of the department are so snarled up that we can't account for some $2.6 trillion in transactions that exist, if that's believable. Uh, and, and yet we're told that we can't hire CPAs to help untangle it in many respects. Uh, Mr. Secretary, uh, the first time and, and the last time that, that Dove Zackheim and I uh, broke bread together, he told me you'd have a handle on, on that uh, $2.6 trillion by now, but we'll, we'll, we'll discuss that a little. <laughs> You've got a handle, it's just a little hot. <laughs> From 1987 to 2001, Zakheim headed SPC International, a subsidiary of System Planning Corporation, a defense contractor providing air warfare, cybersecurity, and advanced military electronics to the Department of Defense and DARPA. SPC's Radar Physics Laboratory developed a remote control system for airborne vehicles that they were marketing to the Pentagon prior to 9-11. Zakheim was also a participant in drafting Rebuilding America's Defenses, a document that called for a sweeping transformation of the U.S. military, including the implementation of the $50 billion missile defense program and increased use of specialized military technologies. The paper even noted how advanced forms of biological warfare that can target specific genotypes may transform biological warfare from the realm of terror to a politically useful tool. Rebuilding America's Defenses was a white paper produced by the Project for the New American Century, a group founded in 1997 with the goal of projecting American global dominance into the 21st century. Joining Zakheim in the group were a host of other neocons who ended up populating the Bush administration, including Dick Cheney, Paul Wolfowitz, Richard Pearl, Jeb Bush, and Donald Rumsfeld. In their September 2000 document, the group lamented that their plan for transforming the military was not likely unless a defining event took place, one that would galvanize public opinion. The process of transformation, even if it brings revolutionary change, is likely to be a long one, absent some catastrophic and catalyzing event, like a new Pearl Harbor. We, we know that, that the thing that tends to register on people is fear, and we know that that tends to happen after there's a Pearl Harbor, it tends to happen after there's a crisis. And that's too late for us. We've got to be smarter than that. We've got to be wiser than that. We have to be more forward-looking. Um, there's a wonderful book on Pearl Harbor by Roberta Wolstetter and, and a um, foreword by Dr. Schelling that talks about this, this 
problem of, of seeing things happen and not integrating them in your mind and saying, yes, we need to be doing something about that now. Uh, that, that I, I reread periodically uh, because it's so important. And on 9-11-2001, America received its new Pearl Harbor. The attack on the Pentagon struck Wedge 1 on the west side of the building. An office of the U.S. Army called Resource Services Washington had just moved back into Wedge 1 after renovations had taken place there. The office was staffed with 45 accountants, bookkeepers, and budget analysts. 34 of them were killed in the attack. A 2002 follow-up report from the DOD Inspector General on the missing trillions noted that a further $1.1 trillion in made-up accounting entries were processed by the Pentagon in fiscal year 2000, but they did not even attempt to quantify the missing funds for 2001. The Secretary of the Army, Thomas White, later explained they were unable to produce a financial report for 2001 at all, due to the loss of financial management personnel sustained during the September 11th terrorist attack. Before becoming Secretary of the Army, Thomas White was a senior executive at Enron. Enron was one of the largest energy companies in the world, posting a $111 billion profit in 2000, before being exposed as an elaborate corporate accounting fraud in 2001. The SEC, which investigated the Enron scandal, occupied the 11th to 13th floors in World Trade Center Building 7, and their offices were destroyed on 9-11, destroying 3,000 to 4,000 documents on active investigations in the process. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Rumsfeld's war on the Pentagon's bureaucracy did not yield the results he promised. By 2013, the unaccountable money in the Pentagon's coffers had reached $8.5 trillion. The latest scandal to hit Washington comes from a report revealing the Pentagon misplaced $8.5 trillion. Military leaders have also been found ordering subordinates to doctor books to hide the missing money. This is the conclusion of a special report by Reuters. One former Pentagon employee, Linda Woodford, said she spent 15 years there falsifying financial records. Woodford had a job checking Navy accounting records against figures supplied by the Treasury Department. She said money was missing from the report every month. A national security expert, Steve Miles, is here with me to help us crunch the, these numbers. Eight and a half trillion dollars unaccounted for. It's a lot of money. Um, this is the kind of thing that you would think would bring Capitol Hill to a screeching halt. There'd be hearings kind of almost daily. You'd have various committees looking into it. None of that. It just leads to massive waste and there can be all sorts of fraud that you don't know about. Just one example, um, when the Inspector General looked at Iraq, which was you know a lot of money, but in the grand scheme, just a portion of the money the U.S. spends. What they found was about $50 billion of the money the U.S. spent there was wasted. And about $6 billion was completely lost. They had no idea where it went. They, it was completely unaccounted for. But put that in perspective, that's about the amount of money that other countries would spend on their defense in a year total. And that's just the loose pocket change that we lost in the couch. One thing I found very interesting in mm -hmm. this report is that the Pentagon apparently uses a standard operating procedure to enter false numbers mm -hmm. or so-called plugs to cover lost or missing information in their accounting in order to submit a balanced budget to the Treasury. So they can write in everything. It, it, I mean, that's probably the most shocking part of this is that they get to the end of the day and they say, oh, there's, there's money missing. What do we do? Well, we'll just put a number in there that says it's there and we'll sort it out later. I mean, again, and this is, this is the type of operating practice that if you did it in your own business, if you tried to do it with your own taxes for the government, they'd haul you off to jail. But then, given that the trillions have never been accounted for, and given that American defense spending soared to record levels after the attack, perhaps Rumsfeld's war on the Pentagon, the one he announced on September 10th, was successful after all. And perhaps September 11th was the key battle in that war. Some might ask, how in the world could the Secretary of Defense attack the Pentagon in front of its people? To them I reply, I have no desire to attack the Pentagon. I want to liberate it. Hmm. I wonder why the Daniel Funks of the world, the misinformation foot soldiers for AFP Fact Check, won't 
touch something like that with a 10-foot pole. No, no, no. Let's go to some Instagram post with some crudely made, made meme that comprises a total of 10 words of information. Take that straw man and then debunk it. I wonder why they take that route. Anyway, for the Daniel Funks of the world, uh, why don't you come on the Corbett Report and we'll see what you really know about this subject. How much time and energy you've really spent researching this and what you really think the implications of this information are because I'd be very interested to hear you defend it. And hey, I won't even take you out of context with one, one sentence of a quotation that I use to make you sound like you're saying something completely different than you were actually saying. No, I'll, I'll show the whole interview. Why not? I wonder if, wonder if the Daniel Funks of the world would be interested in showing their face on something like the Corbett Report to actually answer for the disinformation they're spewing. Probably not. At any rate, this is what we're dealing with. But as I say, the AFP fact checks of the world really are the lowest level gutter swill propaganda that is aimed at the masses of asses, the absolute, uh, well, lowest rung of the propaganda ladder. Let's put it that way. So is there a higher rung? Is there something that's actually meant to be somewhat more, somewhat more convincing? somewhat more refined and nuanced and academic? Well, yes, as a matter of fact, because it's true what I say. I'm not joking when I say there is an entire industry that is arising around this fact-checking enterprise, and it is not just the AFPs and the PolitiFacts and the Snopes of the world. It is also an academic industry that is developing, that is creating all of these positions, professorships and others, journals and, and articles are being produced on this growing subject, the threat to democracy that is misinformation. So let's take a look at some examples of that, shall we, and dissect how that propaganda works. And what better example could I find than this 2022 article that was published in that prestigious, peer-reviewed, maybe, journal, scientific journal, GM crops and food? <laughs> no bias there, guys. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> apparently there is a GM crops and food journal which published this academic review in 2022, Misinformation in the Media, Global Coverage of GMOs 2019 to 2021, by Mark Linus, Jordan Adams, and Joan Conroe. Hmm, Mark Linus, where have I heard that name before? Try typing that name into my search bar, just L-Y-N-A-S, and see what comes up. But anyway, hmm, all right, let's, let's see what they've got here. They've got this misinformation in the media summarization here, and let's look at the abstract just to get an idea of what we're dealing with. Misinformation is a serious problem in scientific debates ranging from climate change to vaccines to nuclear power. In this study, we quantitatively assess the phenomenon of misinformation. Quantitative? It must be science. We quantitatively assess the phenomenon of misinformation defined as information which is at variance with widely accepted scientific consensus. I'll let you cogitate on that definition just a little bit, but anyway, just put a pin on that. We'll come back to it. On genetically modified crops and food, GMOs, in the mainstream and online news media over a two-year period, we found an overall falsehood rate of 9% with a potential readership of 256 million. Numbers! It must be science. <laughs> None of the misinformation was positive in sentiment. Most was negative. About a fifth of Africa's media coverage on GMOs contained misinformation, a worrying finding given the potential for genetic engineering to deliver improved nutrition and food security in the continent. Asterisk citation needed. We conclude that misinformation about GMOs in the mainstream media is still a significant problem and outranks the proportion of misinformation in other comparable debates, such as COVID-19 and vaccines. Hmm, I wonder what side of uh, the debate they'd come down on that one. Well, anyway, uh, well, here's the article. You can go read through it on your own time as you wish, and uh, I'll throw in the PDF link in case you prefer to read it that way. But long story short, and I mean long story short, is there anything really here? Is there any meat on these bones? Well, let's let's take a look at a dissenting point of view on this, shall we? Let's take a look at this from GM Watch, which published this particular article um, just recently. Uh, they published this uh, just the last week, in which they noted that peer-reviewed critique published of Linus's article, Mark Linus's article, assuming GMO critics, accusing GMO critics of spreading misinformation. And let's see if I can blow this up for you so that it is Slightly more zoomed in. Sorry about this, guys. No, I don't want to zoom out. I want to zoom in. Here we go. Here we go. All right. 
I'm leave leave this in, Brock. Every single bit of it. Anyway, okay. <laughs> Peer-reviewed critique published of Mark Linus's article accusing GMO critics of spreading misinformation, in which they note that about this article and who is guilty of misinformation, etc., etc. They note that in their paper, Antonio et al., the people who are responding to Linus's critique, show that the Linus et al. article is so full of incorrect and misleading claims, spurious analogies, biased and selective use of research, and serious methodological weaknesses that it is in itself an example of misinformation. In particular, they cite evidence to demonstrate that Linus et al.'s claims of the alleged success of GMOs in India are one-sided and unreliable. They also state that Linus et al. characterization of the history of GMOs in Africa, which in reality is a catalog of failure, is highly misleading, and that this troubled history may be equally or more to blame for the negative policy environment around GMOs on the African continent than any misinformation in the media. And uh, they draw on they they draw attention to Linus et al.'s subjective interpretation of misinformation, which assumes that any article that is negative, mixed, or even neutral in sentiment about GMOs is misinformation, without providing any analysis to show how it is incorrect. This fundamental methodological error leads them to the highly improbable conclusion that no article giving a positive impression of GMOs contain misinformation, which, while only articles that are negative, mixed, or neutral about GMOs contain misinformation. Absolutely ridiculous. And so they, they show, they demonstrate this in, in detail about the methodological weaknesses and how it's enacted in this article. But I think that goes back to what we were highlighting in the abstract here. They define misinformation as information which is at variance with widely accepted scientific consensus, which is a, a quish, squishy, squashy term of nonsense that means whatever the person writing this wants it to mean. Well, I think the widely accepted scientific consensus is that fill in the blank, and they'll cite whatever they want. And if someone did it the other way around, they would accuse that person of cherry picking. Well, you can't just take the IARC's finding that glyphosate is a carcinogenic substance at face value. You've got to consider this, that, and the other. But when they do it, well, look, the, the EU or the FDA regulate GMOs as if they're, they're as good as mother's milk. Therefore, that's, that's, the, that's the consensus. And anything that goes against that is misinformation, which by definition means that any not even any critique, but anything that's even just sort of negative or or flame, frames things in a neutral way, anything that is not actively positive about GMOs is just by definition misinformation. And then they come to the shocking conclusion that misinformation is only in one direction and it's only pointing to the bad effects of GMOs. <laughs> I, you see how it is baked into the cake of this academic fact check? Well, of course it isn't academic. And this is... I mean, to cut to the real meat of this, who are these people and what, what is going on here? How did this get into some sort of, is this really a scientific article in a scientific journal? Linus and his co-authors do PR for GMOs. <gasps> Shock. Despite their dismissal of hundreds of genuine scientists as mere self-proclaimed experts, not one of Linus and his co-authors has a scientific background, which raises the question of how they felt qualified to evaluate the evidence on a highly technical and specialized topic such as agricultural GMOs. <laughs> Good question. Instead, their backgrounds are primarily in campaigning and writing, Linus, and public communications and relations, Conroe and Adams. Linus and Conroe are affiliated with the Alliance for Science. Adams works for the PR and communications company Sision Insights. Sision has worked with the Alliance for Science to develop a more effective communication strategy around GMOs. Totally neutral and unbiased, guys. Uh, the transparency watchdog US Right to Know calls the Alliance for Science a public relations campaign funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, who else, that works to promote and increase acceptance for genetically engineered foods around the world, especially in Africa. And since its inception, the Alliance for Science has been advised by, drumroll please, Monsanto's former head of public affairs and their chief internet strategist, Jay Byrne, etc., etc. Well, I think you get the idea, but in case not, I will, of course, link up this entire GM Watch article. I will also link up the article that they're writing about, the response to Linus's article that was published in Environmental Sciences Europe um, just last week. And uh, it's an open access publication, so again, you can read through the entire article and really drill into the details of it. But long story short, yeah, hmm, it seems like there's an academic fact-checking enterprise slash industry that is every bit as duplicitous as the mainstream propaganda version 
um, for the, the masses. And more examples of that, for example, let's go to the Harvard Kennedy School, why not? Which has its Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy, which has a focal point of online misinformation. And uh, they have this Matthew Baum character, the Marvin called Professor of Global Communications, who's leading the way by pioneering this research, this academic research in this increasingly academic industry of articles and professorships and journals devoted to, to online misinformation. And hey, speaking of which, in addition, Baum and, Shor and Shorenstein Center postdoctoral fellow Iran Pesquetto are overseeing the creation of a new journal called The Misinformation Review, not italicized? What's your style guide there, guys? Which will vastly speed up the typical time lag in publishing peer-reviewed research from more than a year to just a month or two. Yay! We can get, we can get that misinformation to you faster. <laughs> the Misinformation Review is perhaps an, uh, an unintendedly accurate title for <laughs> such a journal, but I'll let you come to your own decision on that. Uh, of course, I'll link up the Misinformation Review homepage so you can go and see what kind of articles they're featuring and what, what they think are the pressing misinformation topics we need to be talking about. Did the, did the Musk takeover boost contentious actors on Twitter? <gasps> Ooh. Re click to find out, or uh, a, a survey of experts' views on misinformation. Yay! More expert views. Tell us what we should think, experts. You are always correct. Anyway, etc. etc. So you can, and please do, explore the review to your heart's content. But if you want the cookie cutter, or not the cookie cutter, the, the short form summary the cookie crumb summary. Uh, you could go to Covert Action Magazine, and I say that with tongue-in-cheek because there's never a short-form summary from Covert Action Magazine. It's always a lengthy, voluminous, dense, very detailed article, and this is no exception. This one is Harvard Kennedy School's Misinformation Review Promotes Its Own Misinformation, and it talks about the formation of this particular journal and who the characters are behind it. And then it goes through a number of different articles that have been published in it and breaks down the propaganda that's functioning within them. For example, an article in the Misinformation Review in May of 2021, written by three political scientists at Virginia Commonwealth University, advocated for instituting source alerts that would flag social media posts thought to be Russian propaganda. <laughs> and the thought to be is doing a lot of lifting in that sentence, as you might imagine, because, well, let's turn to a real life example. You will remember from that clip montage at the beginning of today's episode, you remember Scary Poppins, uh, the would be director of the would be disinformation governance board, that Orwellian uh, adjunct of the Department of Homeland Security that was officially scuttled last year. I'm sure it's just gone underground, like total information awareness and other other such inconveniently uh, 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 revealed programs. But anyway, Nina Jankowitz, Scary Poppins, uh, a former advisor to the Ukrainian government and the person who was going to be in charge of this White House task force, this DHS task force in cracking down on online misinformation who, oh, by the way, promoted her own disinformation when she supported the idea that the Hunter Biden laptop story could be a Russian disinformation operation, which we now know that it was not, period, full stop, end of story. It was not a Russian disinformation operation. But everyone who was anyone in the fact-checking world fact-checking world, um, absolutely said exactly that. So source alerts for anything thought to be Russian propaganda sounds like a good way of the establishment being able to label anything that it doesn't like as false, misleading, misinformation, disinformation, which of course is the point of all of this. But in case you need more demonstration of that fact, again, I will link you to this incredibly lengthy, incredibly detailed article going through various parts of the, what is being published in the Misinformation Review and why it is uh, self-evidently fallacious. But self-evident may be the, the real point here. So what what is the answer to this? As I say, this is not just some tiny part of the overall propaganda pyramid that's being constructed and being used to, f to push the technocratic tyrannical agenda. This is an incredibly growing and important industry that is being populated by more and more so-called would-be experts and, uh, and professors and others who are increasingly making it their career to talk about 
this growing existential threat to democracy, however they want to frame it, in order to continue getting the funds flowing into their industry. That is how this game works. It's exactly how the military-industrial complex functions. Hey, if there's no war, we better create one. It's how the terror-industrial complex functions. Hey, if there's no terrorism, we better fund some into existence. It's exactly how the, uh, the information-industrial complex functions, with Big Brother and Big Tech increasingly flexing its Orwellian censorship muscles, um, in collaboration, in open collaboration sometimes with governments around the world to censor their citizens at the behest of the fact-checkers and so-called misinformation experts. But if there's any ray of hope here, it's that nobody, nobody with two brain cells to rub together believes this. And I, I mean that not just people in the Corbett Report audience who are naturally going to be skeptical of official stories, but I would say the general public. And there are reasons for that. Reasons that you could even find in the increasingly inaccurately named periodical Scientific American, which really should remove the word scientific from its uh, from its title at this point. But anyway, I would never cite Scientific American at this point except to rip its propaganda. But broken clocks, twice a day, etc., etc. The psychology of fact-checking. Fact-checkers aim to get closer to the truth, but their biases can shroud the very truth they seek. Hmm... You don't say. So, yes, this is one of those articles. It starts out, of course, propaganda, uh, pushing the propaganda line about how laudable and wonderful the, the journalistic enterprise of fact-checking is and how necessary it is in this day of p politicians and pundits who are throwing around fake news um, left and right. But when it comes to real-world complexities, the trouble is that people often see different things when looking at the same event, a phenomenon repeatedly documented by psychologists. Well, look, you don't need psychologists to document this phenomenon, and you don't need to read about it in Scientific American. Although, to be fair, they do talk about it in some degree of detail here, and they are correct. Two people can look at the exact same event and interpret it in wildly different ways because they have different understandings of the world. They have different knowledge bases. They come at it from a different perspective. And that doesn't mean that either one is necessarily right or wrong or true or false in some fact-checkable way. They may be talking about the same facts, but interpreting those facts differently, which is where we get all of those wonderful uh, insufficient context or missing context labels on the fact-checks and things like this. It's just clearly nonsensical that anyone would give over their not just their mental faculties and, and assign those the, the chore of thinking to somebody else, but to allow someone else to be the arbiter of what is true and what is false. Who in their right mind would do that? Probably no one. And there are reasons for that. But we see where this kind of critique, this establishment critique of fact-checking will ultimately lead to articles like this one from Psychology Today. Fact-checking is ineffective where it counts. <coughs> Excuse me. Which, of course, as you can imagine, it starts to talk about how fact-checking messages uh, don't make it through to citizens that uh, uh, when they oppose those citizens' prior beliefs, especially if the appeals clash with their partisan leanings. So, uh, you know where this is going to go. Well, these dumb, stupid yokels in flyover country just don't understand science, which is why they refuse the vaccines or whatever else whatever other narrative is going to be foisted on this. So you know where this type of limited hangout critique of fact-checking goes. It's basically, it just, you're doing it the wrong way, guys. You're trying to reason with these yahoos, but they're yahoos, so you shouldn't reason with them. You got to subtly, psychologically manipulate them to get, the, to get you to believe what you want them to believe. And they'll think it's some kind of conspiracy. <laughs> anyway, as I say, you know where this is going. But as I say, I really don't think that a large proportion of the public is buying this. At least people who are aware enough to remember what happened yesterday. <laughs> because, do you remember, for example, in 2013 when PolitiFact declared Obama's famous, infamous uh, statement, if you like your health care plan, you can keep it. Remember that? Do you remember that? And remember when PolitiFact made that its lie of the year? in 2013 because of what an absolute, total, 100% fabrication it was. But do you also remember how in 2012, that exact same statement, the very same statement, was a half-truth. And in 2009, half-truth. 2012, half-truth. 2013, lie of the year. Sure, why not? Reality is whatever PolitiFact says it is. Or how about Snopes? How could we have an episode on fact-checking without Snopes? 2000. 
23, the Ocean Gate Titanic submersible story. Remember when that was the story of the year for 24 hours or whatever that was? Uh, and remember when Snopes came out uh, to to tackle the question, is this is this a true claim? Oceangate, the company behind the submersible that went missing in June 2023 on a Titanic wreckage exploration, relied on Elon Musk's Starlink satellites to provide communications during the expedition. <laughs> Which just plays into this whole Musk versus the establishment nonsense that, of course, we know is a charade. But, but anyway, regardless, true! Absolutely true. Yes, Starlink is a subsidiary of SpaceX, which Elon Musk runs. And However, we do not know how much Starlink is responsible for the loss of contact. But we know it is responsible, just we don't know how much. Which, of course, was immediately corrected to, well, actually, it's unproven. We, you know, we don't know, ultimately, what the story is here. You know, who can say? It may be true. It may be. It's just unproven. Oh, no, wait. Sorry, did we say unproven? We meant false. <laughs> so just keep changing the rating. No one will notice. No one will see when you make these little changes, right? No one will notice when you flatly contradict yourself over and over and over. Oh, wait, some people will notice that. And they may even record it for posterity so that they can see that you are liars and misinformation spreaders yourself. But, you know, it does raise an interesting point because, look, there is a growing industry that's just hungry for content about misinformation and hungry to feed the public narratives by experts who will tell them what to believe, trust the science. So, you know, when you think of it in that context, it must be pretty easy to game a system of light like that to implant false stories in the media, right? Thanks, Bernard. Now, finally, for now, a mysterious hole on a beach has caused a stir in North Dublin. A local astronomy enthusiast is hoping the crater in Port Marnock could be the aftermath of a cosmic event. It's a huge, mysterious crater that looks out of this world. But is it? The unusual hole on Port Marnock Beach stopped local astrophysics enthusiast Dave Kennedy in his tracks yesterday, and he's certain the small but heavy rock inside it came from up above. As you can tell by here, there's a scorch mark on this side here, so that would have been at the angle that it came down at. And uh, it is weighty. I'm not sure if it's composition, but we're definitely going to have to find out. The striking hole soon caught the attention of passers-by, many hoping that what they're witnessing is the aftermath of a once-in-a-lifetime cosmic event. <laughs> Trust the science, guys, am I right? <laughs> uh, it is... It's Clown world can be funny, at the very least, so there's, there's that. But on a much more serious note, we all know where this is heading. We know that this is a serious issue. As stupid, as on-its-face ridiculous as this fact-checking industry is, it is unfortunately just the ominous forewarning of what is to come, which is, of course, the big crackdown. And that can and presumably will take many forms until it arrives at its final conclusion of you need to fingerprint an eye scan to get on the internet and only approved statements will ever be allowed. We're getting there, a bit at a time. It's just how far can they push this agenda? How, ma how many... How, how much legislation do they have to pass? And how much will the public accept it? As usual, I think this ultimately comes down to what the public will and will not put up with. And there are, I guess, things out there that we could take as hope on the horizon, question mark? Or is it hopium? Um, for example, you might have seen that recent story about uh, RMIT's Fact Lab, which got booted from the meta fact checkerverse. Um because, uh, uh, well, because of a number of campaigns slash um, partisan bickering about what this fact checker was doing. Yay, I guess. But really, I mean, obviously, again, is the real solution to this going to be, well, okay, we'll get, we'll get Fed, Fedbook, uh, Zuckerberg, we'll get him to delist all these different fact checkers and that will solve... The no, of course not. That, this is not yay, I guess, but it's certainly not a solution to this problem. So, and of course, that does raise the question, what, what do we do about this? And there are many answers that you can think of. Well, how about an, how about an independent fact-checking organization that actually fact-checks and actually provides context, like the 
the missing trillions, quote unquote, right? Maybe maybe there could be a real journalistic enterprise involved in this, but then again, that takes money and there needs to be some sort of backing to that in order to get it out to the masses. So how do you do that? And what does that look like? Or is there another way of solving this problem? As I say, uh, it is an important problem and it needs to be solved. So this may be fruit, a fruitful exploration for a future edition of Solutions Watch. And in that capacity, I leave the ball in your court. Uh, what do you think? What are the answers to this problem of the fact-checking? At any rate, it is certainly, it can be fun even, satisfying at the very least, to show how ridiculous this propaganda, misinformation, disinformation, no, 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 lying really is, and how much of a lie, how much lying goes on by the liars who are supposedly protecting us from this misinformation and disinformation. But that, that does, the schadenfreude, it does feel good, but it doesn't really accomplish much, does it? So, as I say, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on this subject. Corbett Report members, as always, invited to come and log into CorbettReport.com to leave your opinions on this subject. CorbettReport.com slash fact-checking, where you can find not only the MP3 and MP4 downloads of this and the links to this audio and video material, but also, of course, all of the links to everything that I have looked at in today's exploration. Having said that, that's a lot of information to put on the table, so I'm going to leave it here for today. But I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and I am looking forward to talking to you again in the near future.